If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of James. If you were here with us last week, we uh, got started in the letter. And uh, James, we saw, is writing this letter to Jewish Christians. And they are people who have been, uh, it seems like from what James has to say to them throughout the course of the letter, they're people that have been kind of cast outside of their homes. The way he introduced himself to them last week was by saying that they were uh, in the dispersion, which means they've been scattered outside of Jerusalem, possibly outside of Israel. And uh, from how he writes to them, we can tell that they're suffering. They're suffering probably economic hardship, possibly persecution as well. And what we saw at the beginning of the letter last week was that he kind of blows through the normal customary greetings just to get to what he wants to tell them. And what he wanted to tell them last week was that they should respond joyfully to trials. Specifically, what he was saying to them is that they should change the way that they think or the way they view or the way they perceive the trials that they face in their lives. Instead of seeing them as something that's bad or negative, they should instead see them as a joyful thing that they get to endure because of what those trials produce in them. And the way, James says, that they're going to be able to respond to trials in such a way is by asking God for wisdom. They're going to lack wisdom, they're going to need it, and so they ask God for it in faith and God will answer that request. Today in our passage, which is going to be verses 9 through 18, it it kind of seems like if we're just kind of blowing through this and reading quickly that James changes the subject very quickly. He's talking about trials, he's talking about wisdom, then he starts talking about the rich and the poor, then he starts talking about our eternal reward, then he starts talking about sin and temptation, and then finally he talks about how God gives us good gifts. And so it seems like he's just kind of all over the place, shifting from one thing to the next. But what I think we'll see today is that what's really going on in this passage is James is kind of unpacking what he was talking about last week. He talked about how we should respond to trials wisely, and that's going to cause us to see them joyfully. And so what he's giving us this week, I think, is a picture of what a wise response to trials looks like. And so almost like four different examples of how wisdom shapes the way we view our trials. And so we're going to start reading in verse 9. If you're using one of the Bibles from under the chairs, it's on page 1011. We're going to read verses 9 through 18. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that you inspired James to write to these 
anonymous Christians who were suffering. God, we pray that this morning that you would send your spirit once again to help us, to, to aid us in our understanding of what James writes to them, what James writes to us. That this morning that we would learn from you more about who you are and more about who we are in light of who you are. God, that we would recognize your place and our place in this world and through that respond wisely to the trials that we face in it. God, we thank you for all that you have accomplished on our behalf. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So the main point for us this morning in these verses, kind of picking up on what we finished with last week, is that a joyful response to trials happens when we view God and ourselves accurately. We respond joyfully to trials when we view God and we view ourselves accurately, or if instead of accurately, we could say with wisdom. And James is going to tell us kind of four different things this week which will help us get to that accurate understanding of who God is and who we are. So the first thing he says is in verses 9 through 11, he talks about this this contrast between this lowly brother and this rich brother. Verse 9, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Verse 10, the rich in his humiliation. So even though he says lowly here instead of poor, because it's clear that James is contrasting these two different people. There's this lowly brother, there's this rich brother. We can assume that what he means by lowly is poor. It means having low economic circumstances or humble economic circumstances, which is poor. So he's saying that this poor person should boast in his exaltation, the rich person should boast in his humiliation. And so uh, even though all of us here this morning, comparatively speaking to the rest of the world, we are very, very wealthy, it's still my guess, and I know this is true for me, that we in this, these two verses will identify more with the poor person than the rich person. Would you say that's accurate for most of us? At least I know most of our uh, young married members uh, have small bank accounts. And so we would identify with the poor. And so the question is what or how is the poor person exalted? What do you think James is saying here? And that's, that's a real question. How is this, this lowly brother exalted? There's not, well, there are wrong answers, but there's not necessarily one right answer that I'm looking for. An inherent dependence on God. So because he's poor, he's kind of compelled to depend on God. That's a great answer. Yes, because of Uh, What we see in the Gospels is just all these reversals that happen because of the kingdoms coming. And Shannon pointed out one of those. And uh, I think that that's exactly what James is talking about here, uh, along with what, what Sean said, that the poor are exalted, not in their poverty, not in their earthly circumstances, but in light of what Christ has done for us. He has exalted them because because of their position in him, right, even though it sounds cliche, even though it sounds uh, somewhat practically unhelpful in this life, we are spiritually rich. Uh, And so 
I think that that's, that's exactly what James is getting at here. He's saying that the poor people, even though they're poor, even though their situation in this life is, is low or lower than low, if they are in Christ, they are exalted in him. They're lifted up in him. And the other side of this is that the rich or the poor or the, the, the rich brother in Christ, and I think that this person also is a believer. We've got the lowly brother. We've got the rich brother. He is to boast in his humiliation. That doesn't sound fun. He should boast in his, his humbling, his being made low. So the poor person is exalted in Christ. The rich person is humiliated in Christ. I think that, first of all, we need to recognize that this isn't uh, the way we use the word humiliation, right? We use the word humiliation uh, in the sense of embarrassment, right? If, if something, you know, really embarrassing happens to you in public in front of a whole bunch of people, you feel humiliated. But that's not, you know, James isn't saying that the rich are going to be made fun of in Christ, That's not what's going on. They're going to be brought low. And and he unpacks this in verses, uh, the rest of verse 10 and verse 11. He says, Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises, uh, it withers the grass, it kills the flower, beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So he's going to work and work and work to, to collect all this wealth for himself, and then he's going to die. His money doesn't die with him. Someone else gets it. So uh, he is humiliated or brought low or humbled in Christ because he recognizes that for eternal worth, his wealth does not matter. And so James' point here for them, for these people who probably would have been in this lowly situation, his point is that a, a wise response to trials, when we, we look at who we are in light of who Christ is and what he's done for us, it doesn't really matter whether we're poor or whether we're rich because we're on a, a level field in Christ. Our position in Christ is what matters, not the kind of job we have, not the kind of car we drive, not how big our house is, not the balance of our bank account. It doesn't matter whether it's great or whether it's small. What matters is whether or not we are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, that's what we are called to boast in or take pride in or glory in. Those are things that we normally think that we're not supposed to do. We're supposed to be these humble Christian people. But in Christ, we should take pride. In Christ, we should boast. Because we recognize that that worth matters more than anything else economically here and now. So these people in the midst of this economic hardship can look to Christ for joy, recognizing with wisdom that even if they had wealth, they would still face trials. It would just be a different kind of trials. So the answer to solving their problem isn't to get more money or less money. The answer to solving their problem is to look to Christ. And that's for us this morning. And uh, before we move on to the next section, I want to say one more thing about this this poor, rich divide. And that's that I think that since James wrote this letter, culture has kind of shifted, at least ours has, to where uh, here he says the the poor uh, are, are low. They're humble. They're meek. The rich are exalted. The rich are high. The rich are usually prideful or boastful. 
But I think that what we see in our culture, and I think what we see in our church some, is that there is a pride that comes with poverty, or even uh, thriftiness, or cheapness. There's a pride that comes to where we say, well, you know, we're not like those rich Christians on the other side of town. We don't have very much money. So clearly, we are better followers of Jesus because our bank accounts are small instead of big. Or our house is small instead of big. Or our car is old instead of new. And uh, so James doesn't address that because that didn't happen in his culture. There weren't prideful poor people. Uh, And so what we need to recognize is that even though we're poor, even though we're, you know, have low-paying jobs comparatively to other people. Uh, our boasting should still be in Christ and not in our uh, low financial state, as ironic as that seems. So whether we're poor, whether we're rich, the point for us here is to uh, place our hope in Christ, to trust in him, to boast in him, and not in ourselves. Now in verse 12, James moves to the next kind of example of this wise way of looking at the world that will cause us to respond to trials joyfully. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so the first one is recognizing that regardless of our circumstances, we boast in Christ. The second one is hoping in our eternal reward. James tells us that God has promised to those who love them, those who remain steadfast or endure, that we'll receive this crown of life. And here, I think it's important for us to recognize that, you know, despite the songs that we sing, despite some of the paintings that we may have seen or greeting cards that we may have received, I don't think that James means here that we will get a literal, you know, golden crown with jewels in it in the new creation, based on our obedience. And if we obey more, we get more bling. If we obey less, we get less bling. I don't think that that's what James has in mind. First of all, in the Greek world, crowns were not those kinds of crowns. They were laurels, which is a wreath. And I don't know about you, but for me, this becomes very unmotivating. If I'm told that, you know, I obey and endure in this life in the midst of all this suffering, in the midst of all these trials, and at the end, I get to wear a holiday decoration on my head. That's not an incentive, at least for me. It's not, I don't think, a literal crown. He's using a metaphor. It's the crown which is life. Our reward at the end isn't a piece of jewelry. It's not a holiday decoration. It's not something that we wear. It is life with him who's the true reward, Jesus. That's what we look for. That's what we hope in. That's what we're waiting for. That's how we endure these trials now because we know that one day there's coming a time when not only are no trials going to befall us, but we'll be with him where he is and in a place that he's made for us. Since we just spent all this time talking about the new creation, I don't feel like I need to talk about that much. But that's where our hope should be in the midst of trials. So wise response to trials is recognizing that that's what's going to happen for us. 
And it's to those that remain steadfast. So last week he told us that we should be steadfast because that's how we grow more and more and more to be like him and less and less like who we were before the gospel started transforming us. Here he gives us another reason to be steadfast because the people that remain steadfast are the ones who are going to get that life. This is just like what Jesus said in the gospels when he said that the one who endures till the end will be saved. Not the ones that endure for a little bit, not the ones who remain steadfast for a short time. It's that long-term, lifelong endurance or steadfastness in the midst of the trials we face that results in that salvation that's to come, that's promised to us. And so he's calling us again to be steadfast in trials because it's those people that get this promise of life. Verse 13, he changes gears again. He gives us another example of a way, and here it's really not an example of how we can respond wisely to trials. It's more of an example of how uh, not to respond unwisely to trials. And here I think James shows how well he understands us as people and probably himself as a person. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So I think here what James is recognizing is that when we face trials, there is a strong temptation in us to say, God is doing this to me. He's causing these bad things to happen in my life. He's doing this bad stuff to me. He's causing me to to sin or to respond unwisely to these trials I'm facing. And so James says, don't do that. Let no one say when he is tempted that God is tempting me. Does God test us? Absolutely. We see that in the Old Testament, right? He tests Abraham. He tests Israel. He tests other people. But he does not tempt them with sin or lead them into sin or cause them to sin. He doesn't do that to us either. And so he says, don't say that because God, not only can God himself not be tempted with evil, which it would be an evil thing to do that to us, but he himself tempts no one. So God can't be tempted. He doesn't tempt us. So we shouldn't say that. And then he tells us what's really going on when we think those thoughts, when we want to respond uh, negatively to trials. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person, that's you, that's me, we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. So when we sin, we sin not because of what's on TV, not because of what's on the internet, not because of what's in movies, not because of what someone else does or doesn't do to us, not because of, you know, things that happen in the outside world, James says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Where are these desires at? Are they out there? They're they're in me. They're in you. We are lured and enticed by our own desires. And this, this metaphor James uses here is a fishing metaphor. I love fly fishing. In fact, normally this time of year, I would be doing that this weekend. But since we just had a baby, I'm here, and I'm so happy that I'm here. But when you fly fish, uh, you have a, it's not called a lure, it's called a fly, but it's the same thing. 
And the goal is to get the fish to come out from where they are hiding undercover. They're safe, right, in this hole in the river or under a log. And you want to throw something out in front of them that they say, hey, that looks delicious. I want to eat that. So they leave their safe place. They come out. They eat it. And then we eat them. Right? They, are, they are lured, they are enticed. They see something that seems good, that's attractive to them, and so they pursue it. And James says that that's exactly what we do to ourselves with our own desires. There's not someone else fishing for us. We're fishing for ourselves. We have these desires within us. Uh, Paul Tripp uses this illustration, which I think is phenomenal to talk about sin. He takes a bottle of water, and I'm not going to do what he does because I don't want to make a huge mess. But he takes it, and he shakes it. So imagine me shaking this and water going all over the place. Right? And then he asks the question, why did water come out? So what would you say? Because you shook it. And that's the answer that most people give. But most of you know me well enough to know that the simple answer is never the answer that I want. It's a trick question, right? And for Paul Tripp, it's a trick question. Water comes out because water's what's inside. Right? If there wasn't water in here, I could shake this bottle all day long and water would never come out. If there was soda in here, I could shake this bottle all day long and water would never come out. The reason why water comes out when... Uh, I would shake it is because water is what's inside. The reason why we give in to temptation is because evil desires are what's inside. Someone else isn't doing that to us. Not an outside force acting on us. It's in us. The reason why we are tempted, James is saying, is because we have desires that are able to be tempted in us. And he's going to explain what happens. Switches from fishing to birth. Then desires, the the sinful desires in us, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It produces sin. And sin grows, it matures like a child, and when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. So sinful desires produce sinful actions, and sinful actions lead in our death. That's the cycle. That's the cycle that all of us are on apart from Christ. The only way we stop this, the only way we we reverse that cycle is by doing what Paul tells us to do in Romans 8, which is uh, by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Otherwise, we've got these sinful desires. They're going to produce sinful acts. Those sinful acts are going to produce our death. And the point for us to recognize more than anything else is that those things begin and end with us. So you fight with your spouse, you fight with your roommate, you get in a disagreement with a friend, you get in a disagreement with your boss, you respond sinfully to things that happen. Those things happen not because of them, but because of you. Someone else's disobedience is never an excuse for ours. We can disobey all on our own just fine. I think in this context, for James, he's saying that for these people, for us, when we face trials, the reason why we respond to them the way we do is not because the trials are more than we can bear. It's not because they're so hard. It's not because you know, we just have a, a bum deal in life. We respond the way we do to trials because of who we are on the inside. 
And that's what we need God's Spirit to address. We don't need Him to take away the trial, even though that's what we want. What we need Him to do is to send His Spirit to do the work in us that He wants to do through the trial. Because that's how those desires are going to be killed in us. If you want to think more about you know, just the process of, of temptation and kind of indwelling sinful desires, I would, I would point you to three places. First of all, uh, go home and read Romans 8. And then once you've read Romans 8, read Romans 1 through 7 and Romans 9 through 16. So just read Romans. Another place, uh, if you like to read, there's a book called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. The book isn't nearly as scary as the title. It's, it's phenomenal. It will help you understand your sin more than anything else. That isn't the Bible. If you don't like to read, there's a sermon series by John Piper called How to Kill Sin. Three sermons where he's essentially preaching the book, The Mortification of Sin. And so, if you want to understand sin more, I would encourage you to do that. That would be very helpful for you. We don't have time to go into all that this morning. Uh, Otherwise, this would be a very, very long sermon. So, here for James, he's talking about temptation in this way so that they will know how to respond to trials. Don't blame them on God. Blame them on yourself. And now that he's made his point kind of negatively by saying, don't say God is tempting you. Instead, Verses 16 and 18, we should recognize that everything good that we have comes from him. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's saying, if you're thinking that God is causing these bad things to happen to you, you are believing a lie. Don't be deceived. Instead, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So not only does, do, do bad things not come from him in our lives, not only does he not cause us to sin, but everything good about us, everything good about our lives, everything good about the people in our lives, everything good about the things in our life, they are from him. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's where the good stuff comes from. And so if we have anything good in our lives, which we all do, we should be an exceedingly grateful people because we should recognize that all of them are grace from him to us. And this isn't just for people that believe. This is for everyone. Every good thing that exists in this world is from him. It's either common grace to everyone or it is specific grace to those who believe. And so we should recognize that our response to the trials we face should not be, why is this bad thing happening to me? Our response should be, why does he give me anything good at all? And then being grateful for it. Because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve good and perfect gifts from him. But he gives them to us anyway. And not only you know, do we not have to wonder about where the good stuff comes from. We don't have to worry that you know, he's going to give us a good gift today. And then tomorrow he's going to change and send bad things to us. James tells us that 
There is no variation or shadow due to change with him. He is good today. He was good in Genesis 1. He was good in Genesis 2. He was good in Genesis 3. He will be good all the way to the end. He does not change. And so every good and perfect gift in our life today is from him. Every good and perfect gift in our life tomorrow is from him and forever. And so as we go through trials, we need to recognize that not only is he not causing us to sin, but instead all the good stuff we get to experience in this life is from him. We should thank him and praise him and rejoice in him because of it. Just in case we miss the point, he gives us a specific example of a good and perfect thing that he does for us in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here he's talking about the new birth or the new creation. He's saying that he brought us of his own will. First of all, he did it solely because he wanted to. It wasn't dependent on us. It wasn't dependent on anyone else. It was because he desired to do it. He did it for us. He changed us. He caused us to be born again by the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So James is telling us here that in the midst of trials, we shouldn't be deceived because we know that he does good things for us. And to have an example of one of those good things, we don't need to look any further than the gospel. We know that in Christ, he has given us, in reality, all the good and perfect gifts we'll need ever. It doesn't matter whether we're poor or rich. It doesn't matter whether we have a good job or a bad job. It doesn't matter whether we have supportive people in our life or unsupportive people in our lives. If we are in Christ, then our position is secure. If we're accepted by him, we don't need to be accepted by anyone else. If we're cared for by him, we don't need to be cared for by anyone else. Obviously, I'm not saying that that would be a happy thing for us. We need people in our lives to care about us. But in comparison to how much we need him, we don't. And so his point here to us is to recognize that God is good and to recognize that he has been good to us already in the gospel. So this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I think we should work to remember uh, what James calls us to remember. That no matter what kind of trials we might be facing now or later, that he has done good to us. He is doing good to us, and he will do good to us. I think the gospel this morning that as we think about the Lord's Supper, we should recognize that it helps us in two ways uh, with regard to trials. First of all, it helps us when we fail to respond rightly to trials. Right? When trials come into our lives and we sin or we don't respond joyfully or wisely to them, we can take comfort in knowing that Christ endured trials perfectly on our behalf. He obeyed where we couldn't. And so even as we fail to walk rightly in him in the midst of trials, we can look to him as the one who did it for us. And at the same time, knowing that 
trials or, or the gospel doesn't just help us when we fail. It also helps us to obey so that we won't fail. And so we know that he freed us from this endless cycle of desire to sin to death. And because of that, we can obey. Because of that, we can uh, live a steadfast life which results in us getting this crown of life. So because we know that he's freed us not only from the penalty of our sin, but also the power of it, we know that we can, in fact, respond rightly to trials. And so as you kind of prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper this morning, just uh, I would encourage you to do those, those two things. First of all, uh, thank God, thank Christ that he has obeyed where you can't. He has uh, endured where we'll fail. And then the second side of it, ask him by his spirit to help you obey, to help grow you in him so that you can walk in a joyful and wise way in response to trials. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are perfect. God, that you were good and perfect when James wrote these words and that you are still good and perfect today. God, I thank you that we don't have to worry about whether or not you will change, but that your word tells us that you won't. And so that we can trust now and, and trust forever in the knowledge that you provide every good and perfect thing in our lives. And Jesus, we thank you that you came, that for the joy set before you, you endured the trial of trials for us and our sin. Thank you that you obeyed where we couldn't and don't and that you freed us from both the penalty and the power of our sin. Because of that, we can have hope. We can remain steadfast in trials. We can have joy and rejoice in the knowledge that you have done good to us. God, I pray now that you would send your spirit to help us both as individuals and as a body, to celebrate your death rightly. Help us to rejoice in what you've done for us and to, again, place our trust in all that you've accomplished on our behalf instead of putting it in ourselves and our own abilities.